Sage's Stories. Welcome to today's episode of Sage's Stories, the official podcast of Sage's, the Society of American Gastrointestinal and Endoscopic Surgeons. Please make sure to hit the like button and subscribe so you can stay up to date with our most recent episode and enjoy the show. Welcome back, everyone. This is the inaugural session of Sage's Stories, where we shine the light on Sage's most impactful leaders. My name is Dr. Kevin L. Hayek. And I'm Dr. Sharin Tofai. Today's guest on Sage's Stories is Dr. Horacio Asban. Dr. Asban, thank you so much for spending time with us today for the first episode of Sage's Stories. We're so excited to launch this podcast and we couldn't think of a more fitting first guest. Shireen, Kevin, a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's uh, really a little bit of an honor, actually a big honor to be uh, in this episode, which is the inaugural episode. I'm very excited about it. Well, it is our honor to have you on today's episode. Many of our listeners will know you as a dear friend. Most will recent will know you as the recent immediate past president of Sages, and it would take up the balance of our time to talk about all your other accomplishments in the work you have done in the fields of minimally invasive and hepatopancreatic biliary surgery. But suffice to say that Dr. Aspun is a living legend, and we are truly honored to have you on the show. Shall we call you Horacio or oh, Dr. Oh, Aspen? Oh, oh, <laughs> no, no, call me Horacio. Horacio, Thank maybe you. you can tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, where some key moments that led you to being a surgeon. Uh, I'm originally from uh, Bolivia. I was born in La Paz, Bolivia. And uh, I was, uh, my childhood up to 16 years old um, were there. And then I moved to Chile where I did my medical school. In South America, medical school is seven years and is directly after high school. Then I entered medical school uh, in Chile and I uh, was there for seven years. And then I moved to Spain where I did a postgraduate uh, fellowship in surgery at, uh, in Barcelona. And uh, then I moved to the United States where I did uh, research surgical oncology and my whole uh, surgical training. It, How did I decided to look into surgery? You said, um, well, why did I think about surgery? I actually was talking to Kevin the other day uh, by coincidence, and I was telling him that um, I actually thought, what a pity I have to go through medical school to become a surgeon. I, I loved surgery even before I entered into medical school. Mm. Yeah, I mean, just traveling like that, going across the globe and, and landing in, in the United States, you must have just been exposed to so many different ways of doing things in medicine. So, so who were some of maybe your early mentors or, or people that impacted you along your journey? Well, the first person that came as my mentor is my father. Uh, he was a surgeon, but uh, above all, he was a great human being. He was one of these people that has an aura when you're around him. And uh, several sorts of uh, people loved him. And uh, I grew up with that image. But I always said I was not going to be a physician because he, I thought he worked too hard. Um, he did teach me a lot of lessons about life. 
just by showing me what type of physician he was. But um, there was an event um, that happened. My, my older brother that was medical school in Oxford um, died. And that's when I started thinking about becoming a physician. And uh, my father did not want to influence me and uh, never pushed me to be one. Um, but I decided, and I'm very happy I did. Then uh, in terms of mentors, he has been really the main mentor, uh, even though it was my own father. After that, my career, because I moved so much, um, I have several mentors that have been um, uh, influential in a particular spot, but uh, I don't have an overall mentor that has followed my career for several years in the typical sense of the word. Um, I am extremely grateful to many people that have touched my um, profession in ways that I was able to uh, learn from them and um, really learn the good and the bad because uh, some of your best mentors are the ones that show you what not to do too, right? I mean, they're not your mentors, but you, get, uh, you become a mentee of them just by not liking what they do. <laughs> no doubt. That's a great story. Um, you know, as, as uh, a parent, I'm sure that your father wanted you to be a surgeon. There's a lot of stories about, or actually studies about children of physicians, children of surgeons, and whether they should or should not feel like they should go into surgery because they've seen their parents work so hard. You're a father now. Um, how did you kind of work with your children and, and show them what it's like to be a surgeon and how has that been similar or different than how your father kind of framed your love for surgery? Obviously, I learned a lot of the of how he uh, handled a son that wanted to be a surgeon from him, but um, our personalities were different. And um, uh, he uh, had more of a traditional, typical surgeon's personality loving his family, but very strong, right? I mean, the, the typical, um, usually right, sometimes wrong, but uh, never in doubt. And um, I, I have a little bit of a different approach. Then um, he never want to influence me. In fact, I did my first appendectomy when I was 19 years old because I had been um, in medical school since I was 16 and, uh, and 17, I would say. And I was assisting in surgery, especially during my vacations. I was the second assistant. His fellows, after having assisted in several appendectomies, just sneaked me in the operating room one day and uh, told me, you're doing the appendectomy today. I said, what? Yes. <laughs> I said, my father is not going to like that. I said, your father is not here today. And, um, and uh, I did. They, they had brought cameras. I still have the pictures. And I was so excited. I did two appendectomies in a row. They, they, they told me, well, why you don't want to do it? I mean, haven't you assisted enough? Yes, you have assisted in over 30. Yes. And what are the steps of the appendectomy? I tell them. They said, well, go ahead and do it. Then wow. I was extremely excited. When my father found out, of course, he was not upset. I think he was elated, but he would never say that, right? There was a, it's a different generation. Uh, I learned a lot from him. Now, in terms of... Um, what do I did with my children? I, um, I never pushed them to be anything other than what they wanted to be, but I definitely pushed them to excel at what they do. It didn't, doesn't matter what, what it is, but the two conditions were like what you do as much as you can, of course, well, within reason, 
and uh, at the same time, uh, try to excel in it. Uh, don't be mediocre in anything you do. It doesn't matter. If you want to shine shoes, then that's fine, but do it the best way you can do. Um, and uh, one of my sons wanted to be a physician um, for uh, since he was a little since he was a little kid, and and uh, he's now uh, finishing his uh, surgical subspecialty. Wow, that's amazing! So that's the third generation of surgeons in your family. Yes, but I I call him the improved version. I call him husband <laughs> two point Oh, that's great. What, was uh, that's fascinating that you were already doing appendectomies at, at that age. Um, I'm presuming those were open appendectomies. Is that right? Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and when did you choose to, to focus on minimally invasive surgery? Well, I was very fortunate. I was in a residency program where one of my senior residents and I um, like laparoscopy and we used to when we used to uh, reduce hernias we used to put a laparoscope through the opening to make sure that the bowel that we had reduced hadn't had died and um, uh, he had heard about laparoscopic cholecystectomy he had graduated uh, back in 1989 and uh, he called me I was still a resident and I tried to uh, join uh, the two people that it's, it's sad, but the majority of, of surgeons today don't even know their names. Eddie, uh, Joe Reddick, and Douglas Olson. Mm -hmm. uh, they were two private practice physicians that had started a laparoscopic cholecystectomy in the United States with Barry McKernan too at the same time. But uh, Eddie, Joe Reddick, and uh, Douglas Olson were the ones that really popularized um, laparoscopic cholecystectomy. Then I called them and called them and uh, they were really booked. Eventually, uh, Douglas Olson called me and told me, hey, you're a resident, right? Yes. I mean, why do you want to just come on a weekend? Why do you come to rotate for a month? I said, what? Yes, just come for an elective month. And I came as a, I went as a resident uh, to an laparoscopic cholecystectomy in 1990, 1989, actually. And that was fascinating to me. And um, I've been very blessed because that has driven my career and I could never believe that uh, would, at that time that we were going to be doing what we're doing now. It's, it's fascinating. That has kept me very passionate about what I do and has, um, has basically allowed me to make tons of friends around the world. Those roots are so important. So this is Dr. Reddick and Dr. Olson of the Reddick-Olson instrument, correct? That is correct. There are several instruments, but the funny thing is because they were private practitioners um, and the way how they were doing the courses was not well received by academia. And, and you know, academia were right because what happened is a lot of people tried to make tons of money doing courses on a weekend. Um, mm -hmm. But Reddick and Olsen um, did it, I think a little bit better than what the majority did. And uh, Eddie Joe Reddick um, used to tell me, I don't know why people are so upset because I'm charging. I, I, you know, I'm not an academician and uh, I don't charge to the people that are in my town, but if people wants to fly to see me, why am I not gonna make money? We're in the United States. And I promised my, my wife, I was going to retire by 45 years old. <laughs> and um, he was at the laser booth in, in the American College of Surgeons and getting significant amount of money for being at the booth. Then all of those things were not well seen. And yes, there were a lot of bad things that happened during that time. 
um, because it was the, the Wild West. Uh, nevertheless, um, there were a lot of good things too, because thanks to them, there was a revolution that changed surgery. Absolutely. And we already shared our stories behind the scenes about when we first got our membership to Sages. When were you first a member of Sages? It was interesting because Eddie Joe Reddy, when I was a resident, he, I was rotating with him and he told me, listen, you need to join this society. And I said, but this is endoscopy. He says, no, no, no. This is a brilliant deep group of people that are innovators. This is such a cool society. It's not that big. This was 1989. Mm -hmm. But somebody like you, you really need to, 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 to uh, join this society. And I said, well, I don't know anybody. You know, you said, just join. You'll do well. And I did, 1990, I think, or something like that, 1991. And then you ultimately decided to narrow your clinical practice into hepatopancreatobiliary surgery. What, what made you kind of go that route uh, once, you, once you were making the decisions on, on what to focus on clinically? Well, it's, it's all the opportunities that, that they present to you. you know, I'm a believer that everyone has opportunities. You just need to take advantage uh, of the ones that you are offered as long as you like them. Then uh, I had taken laparoscopic surgery. I was in the top of the world when I was 31 years old, um, finishing my training and being one of the few people that had the experience in laparoscopic cholestectomy that I had because I went back to my residency program and I taught my residents, my co-residents, I taught my attendings and everyone how to do laparoscopic cholestectomy. And that was a, you know, a, 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 a gift, right? I mean, as a resident to teach your attendings. And um, then I had several job offers, et cetera. But then I realized that laparoscopy was just going to be uh, generalized. It's not a specialty as laparoscopic cholecystectomy because everybody was going to do it. And I was always attracted to pancreas, liver, and endocrine surgery. And um, I applied to a fellowship because I realized I needed to have a higher skill. And um, then I, I did a lot of other advanced surgeries through the laparoscope. And it was a fascinating time on the first years of my career because for the colorectal surgeons, I helped train a lot of colorectal surgeons. Then I learned colorectal surgery and, and so on. And how did your group take it? Because in my town, when laparoscopic cholecystectomy became introduced, there were surgeons that lost their privileges at the hospitals because they felt that it was, you know, almost malpractice to, to do this operation when you can do an open surgery. And there were so many injuries from bile ducts that were reported with a laparoscopic uh, approach. This is very, very early on in that, um, in kind of laparoscopic world. So were they all open to what you were doing or did you have to fight no. your way through? No, no, I had to fight my own way through, especially mm. when I was doing advanced procedures. Mm -hmm. um, but rather than talking about me, because I, I've been talking a lot about me, let me tell you the story about Eddie Joe Reddick and uh, Olsen, how they started. Because at that time, um, Barry McKernan had done one like two weeks ago. Apparently, they, they got together and they planned them. They planned how to do it. And Barry McKernan had done one um, with um, Bill Say, who was a GYN doc. And uh, then uh, Eddie Joe Reddick and Olsen and, uh, had gotten together with a GYN in Tennessee and they planned the first ones. Then Eddie Joe Reddick had uh, what, as I understand, I think eight patients lined up. And after he had done two or three, the cost 
hospital where he was, they say, you cannot do this. Um, you definitely, you know, this is, there's no track record for this. Right. And they wanted to stop him from doing it. And all the other surgeons wanted to stop him from doing it. Somehow he convinced the hospital administration, listen, let me finish the ones that I already have scheduled and I promise I will stop. He was a very smart guy. Then uh, they, they said, okay, after you finish these five or eight, I don't remember, but it was less than 10, you stop, you promise, yes. Then he finished the five or eight, and then they took the privileges out to do laparoscopic cholecystectomy, and they said, you cannot do them anymore. But then he had eight that had done fantastically well. He went across the street, literally across the street to the smaller hospital mm -hmm. that was the competitor hospital and was much smaller and said, listen, I'm willing to move here if you let me do laparoscopic cholecystectomies. They showed the eight that had done fantastic, or the five, I don't remember. And, uh, and all of this started in a, um, this revolution, started in a very, very small hospital that was across the street, the competitor from the initial hospital. And this small hospital had, for the next two or three years, surgeons flying from all over the world to watch. And uh, it was fascinating. I was involved because after I rotated the month, they, I was very fortunate. They invited me to be faculty of their courses. And while I was at the residency training, I flew every other weekend because at that time we were every other weekend on call. Then the weekend I was not on call, I flew from California or they flew me from California to be faculty. I mean, I'm saying faculty, but I was just at the big station to guide the surgeons how to do the goal bother. Then I called myself faculty at that time, but you know, what faculty? I didn't do anything other than just teach them there. But it was fascinating. We saw... I saw um, a very interesting trans transition of the people. The first group of people in the early 1990, 1991 were two types, either the surgeons that had failed and uh, wanted to look for a gizmo to really succeed, or the surgeons that were visionaries and very early on realized this thing is gonna be really good. Then we used to laugh about say, okay, who's gonna be the bad one that just trying to get something new and who's gonna be the visionary? Then in the middle, you know, in the subsequent time, there was the middle group. The middle group were all the majority of the surgeons that learned, that wanted to learn, or the, the average good surgeons that wanted to learn. And uh, a lot of the good academicians went through it. And to me, I was just, I couldn't believe these big names that were on my pig station. You know, I mean, and I obviously no one knew me on that. And uh, then at the very end, it was interesting because they were the disgruntled surgeons that uh, were very upset that this thing had really been successful. And they had been blasting laparoscopic cholecystectomy for, for, you know, a year and a half, two years. And now they found themselves that needed to learn. And those were really unpleasant because they treated you very bad. They, they didn't like it, but they were forced to learn. It was a whole transition. The, I think the story of the, the laparoscopic cholecystectomy and just the, the revolution that that brought on has, has continued. And in many respects, uh, one of the great features in, in surgeons who continue to uh, be part of that innovation is the ability to adapt as as new things come along, but also to recognize which things should keep and which should be given away and let go. Uh, what is a what is something you're doing now, or what what's an operation you're doing now that didn't even exist when you were in your training? Oh my God, are you kidding me? 
that there are several, and that's the beauty of it. Um, uh, the beauty of it for me, um, we have done so many things. And when I say we, I'm not talking just about myself, it's a group of innovators. Um, uh, for example, on HPV, uh, what can I tell you? Something that I started doing uh, when I was at Mayo Clinic is uh, separating the duodenum from the pancreas um, uh, mm -hmm. to do pan pancreas preserving duodenectomies. And um, um, it was fascinating to first realize that we could do that. And uh, second, to see the duodenum connected to the pancreas just by the common bile duct, that you could see it from behind entering the duodenum. I distinctively remember when we did that procedure, a total duodenectomy on a patient with pancreas divisum, we saw two ducts going in and we knew the patient had pancreas divisum. And the, the first time we were looking with my assistant and we were saying, oh my God, we realized that the, 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 the Santorini was the main pancreatic duct, as you know, and the common bile duct with the version were coming out of a crevice and where on the other patients, the pancreatic head was really smooth. And we realized that crevice represented the failure to fuse the posterior bud with the anterior bud of the pancreas, meaning the embryologic um, uh, uh, reason why of the pancreas division. And we have never seen or understood that other than you know what they tell you on the embryology classes. And to see that we were so at all that the scrub nurse keep telling us, what? I don't understand. And then she said, you guys are such a nerds. I mean, why are you so excited about this? What I see there is just pizza. Why are you so excited about it? And we laughed and the things like that. I mean, the first time I did a laparoscopic Whipple in 2001, I think, or 2000 was crazy. Yeah. You know, I mean, we, we couldn't believe the things. I mean, you have to remember when we started cholecystectomy, everything, Laparoscopic cholecystectomy was the perfect procedure to start because everything goes in one direction, right? You don't have to move around. Everything goes to the right upper quadrant. Then if we wanted to go to the lower quadrants, we wouldn't even be able to do it, you know, expeditiously. We, we, we would get disoriented because everything we learned just going in one direction to the, to the right upper quadrant. Little by little, we learned to the point that we did what we did. Uh, but there was a lot of fights, a lot of arguments, a lot of people when you stand up and, and present trying to put you down. Uh, there were hospitals that uh, they review not only the laparoscopic cases, but every single case I did. They were trying to find out, you know, how could they, um, how could they find something to get me? But I'm, I'm don't take it personal. It's normal because there were so many complications by surgeons that were not prudent in what they were doing. And Kevin, I would... Um, I would make a mistake if I don't say what is what guides a surgeon that's doing innovation to be careful and not to forget that we're dealing with patients, right? Sure, yeah, um, Because we get so enthusiastic and particularly when you start to get invited to give lectures and show and you see that people are so enthusiastic about it that it is very dangerous. Mm. You can forget that um, maybe you shouldn't be doing something new, right? Yeah. Then uh, very early on in 1991, when I started to do other things like an arthroscopic cholecystectomy, I started to feel, how do I know this is going to work? How do I know that I should be doing this? Because we saw a lot of complications. 
And what is it driving me to do it? Innovation, of course, helping the patient. But I thought, am I in a conflict here? Because is this really going to help the patient? Or am I trying to convince myself that's going to help the patient because I really want to do it? Yeah. And um, it's going to sound cliche. And, and, and maybe you have heard me say this before. But the simple principle that has guided me my whole career has been, would I do this on my sister? Mm. And that's, of course, you need to think on a sister that you like, of course. Yes. <laughs> but really, would well, I do this on somebody? Yeah. That's correct. Would I do this on somebody that I love? And that's, that is so such a simple statement. Mm. But really, if you practice it in everything you do, you're going to realize that the way how you practice may be very different. As an example, many times we're in surgery and the procedure, uh, let's say pancreas, right? I do. And, and you think, well, this tumor is going to be very dangerous to take it out. I think I'm just going to back out. And then you think, why am I backing out? Well, because it may bleed. Uh, I may you know, have a complication. I'm going to have to present in tumor board. I mean, in, in M&M. Um, if, if the patient has a bad complication, I may get sued. But then you think, what would I do if this is my sister? Would I back out? No, I would just take the risk and do it. And then all of a sudden, you forget about the lawyers. You forget about M&M. And you say... If this is my sister, I would do it. Why am I not going to do it? On what do you tell your graduating or I was just say senior surgical residents about the future of laparoscopic surgery? And how do you motivate them to consider that as a specialty? Well, I think that, uh, that you motivate by example, Shreen. You know, I mean, I, I think if you try to convince somebody to do something, it's always like you're trying to sell something. But if you show, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's just to encourage them, you just have to show the, the greatness of what you're doing. I mean, not, not, not because of me, but because of the specialty. And, uh, and uh, try to see, um, the, to show them the fun of it, uh, being realistic, because you go through a lot of hardship anytime that you do surgery of high complexity. But at the same time, show them the rewards. I show them why do you do that. Um, more than anything, I tell them, just make sure, again, you choose something you like and you're good at it. And don't ever forget that, the, as the Mayo brothers said, the only, the main interest at hand is the well-being of the patient. So we, we all affectionately... Uh, we, we love sages and we, we know that um, this year and your presidency was marked by radical changes in the way the society is run in all societies in many respects. What, what, what's one takeaway from running a society during, during a pandemic that you, that you would share with us? I'm pausing because I've been humbled by it. Mm -hmm. And um, I have learned so much. Um, I've been very fortunate that uh, 
I'd receive a lot of uh, kudos and a lot of compliments about uh, sages this year, um, but I received them um, with with a strong sense of of humbleness. Uh, I think if I could say a single word is adapt. Um, life is a series of adaptations, and and I could never um, say that as strongly as this year. Um, the, when I started, we had um, uh, Aurora Pryor had done a tremendous job on the first weeks of the pandemic, and all of the sandy was falling on my lap. And you have this sense of strong responsibility that um, uh, the reality is. Um, you need to th trust that if you are placed on that position on a society like sages, you must have the staff to be able to lead sages. And I say that because one of the main things when you become a president of sages, and I have heard this in the majority of the presidents that I have worked with is, I'm humble because you think that I am now part of the group of people that are able to um, to lead a society like this, then I thought to myself, they trusted me. Then they, I must have the stuff to do it. Then just forget about it and do it. And one of the main things I did at the very beginning is I am very fortunate. I have a, a big group of friends internationally. And um, I started calling them just as a friend. Uh, I, I distinctly remember um, Andrea Pietrabisa uh, at that time, president of EAS, I gave him a call. Hey, how is Italy doing? And he said, listen, I left Friday. This was Sunday. He said, I left Friday. Everything was good at my hospital. And they called me Saturday and Sunday. We have had a horrendous number of patients. We didn't even have one. And we're canceling everything. Wow. And, and to see the distress on his voice. Mm -hmm. And then on subsequent conversations with my friends in England, in France, etc., I started learning how difficult it was for them and for us. We hadn't even heard of it. I mean, we had heard of it all. I distinctly remember I learned about the lack of smell, the sense of smell and taste when I was talking with one of my friends in Switzerland and, and um, uh, Nicolas de Martins, and he was telling me, listen, you really need to be careful. Our ENT doctors are dropping like flies because um, they are having uh, these patients that, because they have anosmia and we never knew that the virus was causing this. And we now know it's a presenting symptom. That was corroborated with the people in Spain and again with people in Italy. And at that moment I said, we really need to be prepared for this. And we created a big international group that we call the Coronavirus um, uh, Global Surgical Cooperative. Um, and uh, obviously with SAGE's support, uh, we met every week and we were able to do a lot of the communications. We expanded what uh, it had been started the first week with Rory and, um, and we were very successful. And uh, that I was just doing it, not even thinking what, you are, what, what the implications of it were. In a similar manner, you start to attend, um, uh, you know, different areas of, uh, of the society. You start to uh, comparing notes and sharing experiences 
uh, among different areas, not only in around the world, but now in the United States. And it was interesting how to see our friends on our Zoom calls with their faces in Europe first, and then how that transitioned. And then there were a sense of hope to us when Pat Silla in New York, uh, that was part of the group, you see her, you saw her now on the Zoom calls, very desperate and frustrated, uh, handling it in an amazing way, but with the faces that we had seen our Italian friends. And then we could tell her, listen, look at the Italian friends now. They have overcome this, it's, it's past, then it, it's, gonna, it's gonna arrive. We're gonna be able to do that. Then the sharing of those experiences was fantastic. And um, we started to, to interact with industry, as you know, uh, to, to, to deal with uh, the insufflators and the spreading guy in, uh, in, the, uh, in, in, in the operating room, et cetera, et cetera. Then it, it became a fascinating experience. Um, being the president of Sages, especially at this time, humbled me the most for the following reason. When you are in the, in the early ages, you see the sage machinery, you think how fantastic it is, you hope that maybe one day you could be part of it, then you go through the leadership as you two are, and uh, you see all the, the great stuff. But when you become the president, you see it all together. Mm-hmm. And the fascinating thing is you are now not doing all the things things that everybody else is doing, just overseeing and giving the ideas and working extremely hard. But you have the appreciation of what I will call the wonderful people of Sages. It, I've been humbled by the executive committee members, by several of the board members, all the things they do. And now you know how they do it because you have to oversee them. And you are on top of everything else that's happening. And it's just amazing, you, you get humble. We have brilliant people and that's why Sages is so entertaining because all, all of us have passion about it. And we do it in a way that that passion is spread to the people that are around us. And hopefully Sages is gonna be able to keep that as new generations come. I trust that we will. That is so true. and. Now, one year later, we're having our in-person meeting in Las Vegas. Our Sages annual meeting will be August 31st through September 3rd. I will be there. Kevin will be there in person. And I understand there will also be a virtual component, our first meeting um, since the pandemic. So what can the attendees expect for this year? We will be meeting in person. What a gift. Yes. Come on. Yes. You know, yes. after after yes. having all this last year and a half oh without yes. getting into this, we will be meeting in person. And that by itself is going to be fascinating. Um, the precautions have been taken of how things are um, uh, by, by August. Um, um, but uh, the reality is uh, things are looking up um, very well. And um, we probably are going to be able to do a lot of the normal stuff that we normally do. Uh, I hope our friends from Asia and, and even as close as Canada are going to be able to come. Um, South America uh, is not as good as the United States right now, but hopefully things are going to improve. 
And if they don't for them, they will have this, um, this virtual um, uh, possibility to join us. Uh, having said that, the program is superb. I, um, I was very lucky to have uh, Adnan Al-Saidi and, and Dana Talam accept my offer for them to be the, the program chairs. They have an amazing program. They have put an amazing program together. I'm not exaggerating. Um, I think it's going to be um, a, a fascinating way of displaying um, all the capabilities of sages. And uh, we know it's going to be probably um, uh, uh, with some difficulties because I'm not sure how many people are going to be able to bring um, their significant others. But um, it's going to be the first strong step to go back to normality. Then um, whoever is going to listen to this, you better come and show yourself in person. <laughs> so for this next segment, we've affectionately called the We Are the Sages segment in honor of our annual sing-off, which hopefully we will all be at again this year. Uh, we'd like you to share your most memorable sages moment. Oh man! Right. <laughs> wow, it's or maybe a um, memorable there, one. There are so many. It's um, obviously my position is when you learn you're going to be a president. It's extremely memorable. Yeah. But um, as uh, important to me was when uh, I was a an unknown entity, um, and. Uh, I didn't know how to become a member of a committee in Sages. At that time, it wasn't like now that you can self-nominate and it's much more open. I didn't know what the mechanism was. Um, I was very young in my career. And uh, I remember there was this guy that I learned had done a fellowship at Lehi Clinic. And uh, he had uh, treated me well when he saw me, uh, Dan Dezeal. And Dan Dezeal, had always made me feel that he cared about me, even though I was a nobody in the conversations we had. Then uh, that gave me the courage to approach him, to ask him, how do I become a member of a committee at Sages? He was high in the leadership by then. And he just laughed and said, it's very easy. You just tell me and you're going to get one. And guess what? I know the committees that you're going to be good at it. Then he put me as one of them in education resource committee. And um, that was the start of me getting into the leadership and just to see somebody that cared and uh, uh, put a person that had no, um, you know, no mentor to be, to be guided within the sages uh, group. Um, it was great. It was fascinating. And then uh, I always say, you know, I don't, I didn't have a chair that guided me to be a mentor. I didn't have a group, but I had a whole sages. Those yeah. were my mentors. You know, you guys are my mentors. I learned from you. I well, you're our from mentor now. You, you've stepped in. You know? The reason you don't have any mentors anymore now is because you're the mentor now. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's fascinating. We learn from each other. Yeah. You know? And, and uh, I am very fortunate because I think I'm living proof of the fact that uh, if you work hard, um, uh, and you're interested, uh, you can go through the ranks and become president of Sages. 
And just because we're having fun, what was your craziest, funnest moment, memory from a Sages meeting? Craziest, funniest moment. So many, but yes. let me tell you one. Uh, on my early meetings, I think it was New Orleans or something like that. And it was the first, before the first sing-off. And at that time, I had been at the American College of Surgeons and all of those meetings. I was very young. All of a sudden, I'm walking down the streets and I see these professors of surgery that I grew up, remember, on a very hierarchical um, you know, culture in surgery, right? Europe, South America, et cetera. And I see all of these professors of surgery that were on their suits during the day and giving incredible lectures that had my mouth, I mean, my, my jaw dropped thinking, oh my God, what they do, I wanna learn. All of the sudden I said, they cannot be here. They were dancing like crazy and singing and then they did some karaoke or something like that. And I was thinking, what a cool society. I couldn't believe it. And little did I know the next day was the sing-off and I saw all of them, not just the ones that were dancing on the disco. Then, um, you know, the sing-offs can become really crazy, but crazy in a good way. I think that there are several moments. It's, it's difficult to, to say one. It's just a fantastic society. And I keep saying it, not just as an advertising, it's, it's truly what I feel. And, and I think you, you all have, have similar feelings. So Dr. Aspen, this has been an amazing time with you. We love all the stories you shared, truly inspiring. Um, thank you again for joining us today. We can't wait to see you in person in Vegas at the annual meeting. That's August 31st through September 3rd at Sages 2021. Kevin and Shireen, thank you for having me again. I said that at the beginning, it has been a pleasure. This is more than an interview. I feel I just was with friends that had made me feel special and uh, allow me to talk. And gosh, I can't talk. You just saw that. Now you know why we chose you as our first yeah. guest. <laughs> you, didn't, you, you, I, made it I, easy. you made it easy for us. <laughs> I, I, I hope is what you like and um, hopefully people are going to be entertained. I'm, I'm humbled by it. Thank you very much again. And that wraps up today's episode of Sage's Stories. You can view the show notes for additional information mentioned on the show. Also, please visit sages.org for membership information and for the most recent news from our society. Follow us on Twitter at sages underscore updates and make sure you hit the like button and subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes. Tune in again next time and remember, you can't spell minimally invasive surgery without sages.